My name is uh, Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If I don't know you, welcome. We're really glad that you're here with us this morning. Um, we are um, going into a new series today, and the series that we're calling The True and Better Story. And here's what we're going to do for the next seven or eight weeks. We're going to look at um, the Bible um, as one big story, which it is. It is a one comprehensive story. And what this will help us do is to have a better um, understanding of how all the different pieces in the scriptures actually fit together. So when we're reading the Bible, when we're uh, maybe uh, going through a Bible study, or we're, we're maybe listening to a sermon in a different part of the book, it helps us understand how these books fit together and how different genres fit together of literature and these types of things in the text. And here at the church, we primarily preach through books of the Bible, passage by passage, verse by verse. And we're going to pick that up back again at the beginning of, of next year. Um, we'll have this series and then Advent, and then we'll jump into another book that we'll be in for a while. But this series hopefully will help us um, with our, our worldview, understanding our world and understanding the scripture as one story, one message um, as we approach God's work. Now, let's talk about stories, right? Stories are important. We, we live in stories. We, we are around stories all the time. Think about your favorite movies, your favorite TV shows, your favorite books. Um, they draw you in in the way they're told with the characters and the plot lines, and they take you through this emotional journey throughout the story, and this is why they, they suck us in, right? They're the most powerful form of communication. They speak to our mind and our heart and even our bodies and can change the way we feel and or change the way we, we dream and, 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 and act in the world. When you think about this, when you get together um, with your friends that you haven't seen in a while, you don't pull out a list of, of bullet points and go through those. Here's point one, friend. Here's point two. Here's point three. No, you just start talking, and usually what comes out is a series of stories, some long, some short. Or when you get home from a vacation and you're excited about this vacation and you want to talk to people and you want to share people with what, what happened on this vacation, you begin to tell little stories, little snippets. You don't go back through a journal you've kept of a checklist of what you did on your vacation and walk that through with your friend. No, it's, oh, here's what happened. Here was a high point. Here was a low point. Here are some other people who we connected with on the vacation. We are around stories and we tell stories all the time. And stories are powerful. They're even more powerful when we start to make, try to make sense of our story, try to make sense of the things happening to us in the context of what's true and what's reality and what's biblical and what's God's story. Um, an example of this was um, when Nicole and I first met. So we had a, a mutual friend who um, set us up together to meet and we had met a couple of times in, in these contexts that our friend kind of created, so in groups and low-pressure settings that Nicole and I could actually meet and talk. And after those things, I was, I was interested. Like, I thought she was pretty, and I, I wanted to, to, to know her a little bit more. And I, I was definitely, there was enough interest on my end to be able to say, yeah, I'd love to, to get to know her more. And so I asked my friend, tell, tell me, what is she feeling about this, right? And um, our mutual friend, yeah, she's, 
she's not interested right now, okay? And the first thing I obviously think is, how could she be not, not be interested in this, right? Like, she is, what is this girl thinking? She is missing out on this. No, I'm not that secure, right? I start thinking, as most of us probably would, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? What did I do? Am I not attractive enough for her? Do I not have the same interest as her? And so I start filling in the blanks of this story, these gaps of what is reality. Because I don't have enough stuff to go on. All I have is she's not interested right now. And I am kind of interested. So what's going on? So for the next two or three months, I create a story. I create a narrative about my relationship or lack thereof with Nicole, right? And um, it takes a few months, but my... Uh, our friend, our mutual friend, ends up, um, we work in the same place. Her family owns a store. She hired us both to work there. And over the course of working there, we actually got to know each other. In this, like, non-pressure, no-strings-attached, non-dating environment, it's much more conducive to get to really know someone. And it was obvious that we were, like, connecting as we were talking. And so I, we started talking, and, and I asked my friend, I was like, like, what's the deal here? I feel like there's, like, we kind of like each other, right? We're talking, and this is fun. This is easy. And she's like, yeah, she's, she's kind of becoming more interested in you. And so I start trying to figure out what, what's, what's changed, what's the deal. And come to find out, I can't remember, remember if it was from Nicole or from my friend, but Nicole had just gotten out of a relationship, and she didn't want to jump back into a relationship with really a stranger, like getting set up to just immediately go out on dates with someone she didn't really know and go immediately into this kind of pressure-filled environment of dating. And like once I figured that out and I kind of rewound in my mind the narrative that I'd been telling myself, it completely made sense, right? It wasn't that she necessarily wasn't interested in me, right? But it was, that it was like kind of not now. The timing's not right. The way this is happening isn't the way I want it to happen. And um, all things obviously worked out in the end, and th- I, that story took a better turn for me because I got more information. I was now operating out of reality instead of a false view of reality that I kind of filled in the blanks on to make sense of it. And we do this all the time. And as the, when it comes to following Jesus in our relationship with God, um, we can either live in the story God is writing for us, or we can live in a lesser story. And I'll say that again. We can either live in the story God is writing for us and has written for us, or we can live in a lesser story. Those are our two options. There's, there's no other options. It's either the story God's writing or the story that we've created in our head that we're trying to live off of. Um, two authors, um, last names Goheen and Bartholomew, in their book, Drama of Scripture, say this about why it's important to see the Bible as a story. Many of us have read the Bible as if it were merely a mosaic of little bits, theological bits, moral bits, historical critical bits, sermon bits, devotional bits. But when we read the Bible in such a fragmented way, we ignore its divine author's intention to shape our lives through its story. All human communities live out of some story that provides a context for understanding the meaning of history, and give shape and direction to their lives. If we allow the Bible to become fragmented, it is in danger of being absorbed into whatever other story is shaping our culture. And it will thus 
seeks to shape our lives as it should, idolatry has twisted the dominant cultural story of the secular Western world. If as believers we allow this story, rather than the Bible, to become the foundation of our thought and action, then our lives will manifest not the truths of Scripture, but the lies of an idolatrous culture. Hence, the unity of Scripture is no minor matter. A fragmented Bible may actually produce theologically orthodox, morally upright, warmly pious idol worshipers. Again, this is why we're looking at the Bible in this way. So we can either live in the story God has written and is writing for us, or we can live in a lesser story. So to kick off this series, we're going to look at a narrative today from Luke 24. Luke 24. And if you uh, want to follow along in your own Bible, that's great. We have Bibles under every other seat, um, under the seat. And if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you to take one of those home with you as our gift to you. Um, Luke is about two-thirds, a little over two-thirds of the way through the Bible. And we'll be in Luke 24. And we'll start in verse 17. But here's what's happening leading up to this, right? So um, Jesus has died, he's been crucified, and he's risen from the dead, but not all of the followers of Jesus understand that he's alive. So they're just now kind of hearing the news, the tomb's empty, what's going on, and it's confusing. And here are two followers of Jesus, not, one of the, not, not two of the 11, these are just um, other followers of Jesus, and we know that there's two and there's at least one man, because we get a name, a, a male name later, but it could be a man and a woman or two men, we don't know. But it's two of, of, of Jesus' probably closer followers. Not one of the twelve, but one of probably the, the next ring around Jesus. Okay, and these guys are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and it's about seven miles. And they're talking, and they're walking, and they're probably talking about all the things that they had just witnessed that it, it happened. And, and, and before, the verse, before these verses, says, while Jesus was speaking to them, while they were speaking, Jesus approached them. He drew near to them, but it says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So that's the scene, right? Let's pick it up in verse 17. And Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad, right? And so they're sad. Jesus kind of plays dumb to kind of get more out of them here. Then one of them said, named uh, Cleopas, or Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? He's like, Have you been under a rock? Like this, a lot's happened. Verse 19. And he said to them, What things? Again, playing dumb. And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him, they did not see it. Now I want, you to, now I want us to put ourselves in their story, the story these two individuals are living out right now, right? They're sad, right? They're confused. They've been following this man named Jesus maybe up to three years, probably at least for a good length of time. And they, were, they had hopes, 
They had banked their hopes on this man, this savior, this one that was going to come and help them and rescue them. And come in, and, and come in riding in on his white horse, they thought, and overthrow the Roman authorities. Put them in their place. Create an earthly kingdom, political kingdom for God's people. And then their king, their hero, their savior was murdered, was crucified, was shamed publicly, was killed in the most horrible way. And now they've scattered. Everyone's scattered because of fear. And they're walking from Jerusalem down to Emmaus. And the scriptures even say that they were sad. They were feeling this. And maybe some of you right now are feeling the same way. You're doubting God. You're angry with God. Why is this happening to me? Why is this a part of my story? God's not coming through for you. You've been praying and praying and praying and asking, why God? This is not the way I want my story to go. And I think we can all put ourselves in their shoes. And we're going to get to good news here in just a second. But they are living in a story that isn't true. I wanted you to see that. They, they have pieces of it. They, they have a part of it. But how they're interpreting it, this false story, this incomplete story, it's changing them. They're sad, they're despondent, they're confused. They feel helpless. They don't know what to do now with their life probably because they've been following this supposed king around. And here's the key thing that we're about to read. What's going to happen next is the pivot point in their story. Let's look at Luke 24, 25. And Jesus starts to to unpack this for them. Again, they don't know who, who he is still. They don't know this guy. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Exclamation, right? So Jesus doesn't mess around. Now, we don't know if he says this with kind of like a smile on his face, or he's like really getting after them for this with some intensity, right? We don't know, but he he means it, right? He says, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Do y'all know the prophets? Y'all know the promises? Why don't y'all understand this? And then in verse 27, and beginning with Moses, which is really Genesis, right? Like Moses wrote the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, right? And beginning with Moses and then all the prophets, so further into the Old Testament, he interpreted them in all the scriptures. So get that. He's calling the whole Bible at that time the scripture, God's word, the things concerning himself. So Jesus is basically saying, here's how this story goes and here's how I fit into it. I'm the center. I'm, I'm, I'm the Christ. I'm the one that all of this is pointing to. When you read Moses or when you read a prophet, it is pointing to me. And he begins to unpack this for these two travelers walking on the road. He's helping them make sense of the story. He's helping them come to understand what is true about what is happening. He goes all the way back to Genesis, covering all the Old Testament. And he's showing them that he is central. Now, I want to look at another passage that is very similar to this, right? very similar. And I think it's eerily similar how this flows. So let's look at this passage. It takes a different turn. Genesis 3, 1 through 5. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. 
neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So doesn't that sound great, Eve and Adam? So the serpent here, which we know from other places of scripture, is the devil. It's kind of the devil personified here. And I want you to see the similarities. You have two individuals, right? Two individuals in both narratives, right? Adam and Eve and the two travelers. And the one offering them the food, which Jesus will get to that here in a second, but the one offering them the food is a supernatural being that is super powerful. The devil and Jesus. And also, both supernatural beings set themselves up as God. Jesus is saying, I'm the center of the narrative. I'm the center of all the scriptures. And then the serpent, the devil, takes on the authority of God, changes the rules, and has, takes the authority and says, and then he gives that authority over to Eve, or at least this false sense of authority that Adam and Eve buy into. But notice that um, the devil, and we'll get to this here in a couple of weeks in more detail, but notice he doesn't come trying to scare Adam and Eve. He doesn't come holding them hostage and, and scaring them into following him or, 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 or sinning. He is subtle in the way he does it. He tells them a different story, a counterfeit story. He, he has a lot of truth in the story, like his story, God's the main character. But then he says, eh, did God really say this? He has enough truth in there to get Adam and Eve to bite, but he changed this is the complete story. He gets Adam and Eve to question the goodness of God and God's promises that he's promised them. And he sets himself up as the ultimate authority on good and evil, what's right and wrong. And then he says, you know, Eve, you can have that same thing too. Adam, you can have that same thing too. You can be like God. You can have the control. You can have the power. You can have the ability to distinguish what is right and wrong. And which one of us in this room wouldn't be tempted, at least with that offer, right? If we were just really being honest, like you can control everything. We try to do that already. You can have power, unlimited power. You can say things are good and they'll be good. You can say things are evil and they'll be evil. Right? That is what um, the devil is tempting Adam and Eve here. He's changing the story. So my question for us this morning, what lies are we believing? What stories or story are we believing that's causing us to not believe in God? Not trust his promises. Not trust his goodness. Not trust the things that he says are best for us. Maybe you're here in this room and you grew up with two parents who praised you, uh, overly praised you for your accomplishments. Raised in a good home, a high achieving home, and they praised you for all the good things you did. And you, that felt good when you're four, five, six years old. And you're like, I'm going to do more of that. I'm going to become one who, who builds their identity on my accomplishments. But now as an adult, you are feeling trapped in that identity. Your, your, your joy and your freedom rise and fall based off of how good you've done and whatever you think is important right now. What an awful way to live. Because none of us will ever be good enough to keep our joy and our freedom high enough in any given day. Maybe you're only good, as good as your successes in your story. Maybe your story is one of comparison. You get on Instagram and you compare yourself to other people. 
and you compare your appearance to them and you wonder, am I as desirable as them? Is that guy I like or girl I like or guy I'm married to or girl I'm married to, do they find me as attractive as this person I'm seeing on Instagram? So now you have this story of one who is not desirable, who is not attractive, and you have to do things then to earn being attractive or earn the approval from the people that you want that approval from. Maybe you had a horrible epic failure in your childhood. And you're saying that the story you're living is, I will never let that happen again. I will never be shamed or embarrassed or fail like I failed then ever again. So you play it safe now. You're paralyzed. You, you, you have trouble making decisions and living for the purpose that God has given you because you're still, your story is one of a failure. Your identity is one who fails. Instead of one who is loved by God and who can succeed. Does this describe any of you? And you can fill in the blank there. We can go on and on and on with the examples. Again, you either live in the story God is writing for you and believe that, or you live in a lesser story. There's power in stories. Let's keep going on these texts. Luke 24, 28 through 30. And so they, they, they drew near, the scriptures, they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther, Jesus did, but they urged him strongly to stay. And so he said, stay, they, they encourage you, stay with us. It's, and again, they don't know who he is, but he's obviously a good teacher because he's unpacking all these things about Jesus. So stay with us. We want to learn more. Come to our home. So he does. And then in verse 30, it switches from them being the host to now him being the host. Listen to this. And when he was at the table with them, so this kind of intimate, Jesus showing them hospitality, he took the bread. We don't know if this is full communion. Probably not, because I think the scriptures would have said more about it. But he's having this, this intimate meal with them. He, he broke the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. He shares bread with them. He gives them food. Remember what happens in Genesis 6, right? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, Here's food again. And that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Interesting, the food is a parallel in these passages. Like the, kind of the cement of the, of the story, the belief of the story, kind of is, is cemented or grounded in taking of the food. Eve takes the apple, gives it to, um, eats it, gives it to Adam. Sin comes into the world. And now the two that are sitting down with Jesus, who they don't know is Jesus, he gives them food, right? And we'll see what happens next with them. It's interesting that the pair, both pairs in the story don't know who it actually is that's offering them food. Because Adam and Eve have no idea this is the devil, right? If they knew this was the devil, they probably would have run. They don't know if it's the devil. They just think it's some, you know, um, crafty, wise person who's offering them maybe more than God has offered them. Okay? Now let's... See the next part, Genesis 3, 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, Adam and Eve, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So when they believed the serpent, gave in, ate the fruit, their eyes were opened to reality. Their innocence was lost. Sin came into the world. They knew that they were naked. 
and they were ashamed by it. They've all, they were always naked. They just weren't ashamed by it. But now their eyes were opened in such a way to reality, this new reality was sin in the world, and they felt shame. And they did all they could do in the moment to cover it. They went and found some fig leaves, sewed it together. Um, but we see the reality now that is setting in on Adam and Eve because they fully bought into the narrative that the serpent is giving them. And they've ate of the fruit, which kind of cements that belief. And then notice the same passage in verse 31, but let's go up to 28. Um, actually, let's go to 31. So he's, remember, he's at the table with them. He took the bread, blessed it, and broke it and gave it to them. And in the very next verse, he says, and their eyes were opened. Same exact phrase as in Genesis 3. And their eyes were opened. The only place really in, this, in the New Testament or in, on the, all the scriptures that both of these, these passages are used in the same way. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. They recognized Jesus. Instead of recognizing their sin and their shame, they recognized Jesus. It says he vanished from their sight, which is really interesting. He comes back. But here's the deal. The good news of Jesus, when they hear it, it opens their eyes. It opens their eyes to the true and better story. The gaps are filled in. Imagine what these two would have been thinking now, because they're still confused. They're still sad. They're intrigued by this, this, this teaching that this guy is giving them, but now their sadness turns into joy. Their fear turns into hope. They are, they are thrilled that this is the king. This is him. He's with us. He's, he just gave us food. He's gone now. I don't know where he went, but we're excited. We're fired up. All of the, all of the sad things have come untrue, uh, to quote C.S. Lewis, right? They, their, their story has changed, and they know the truth now, and it's changing them. They're now living in the true and greater story. And it changes them. Listen to verse 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? They're looking back on this now. It's like, I knew he was different. Like, I knew the things he was saying, it was, it, they were different than a normal teacher. They were different. And he rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the 11. Notice that. Seven miles. They, they walk seven miles. They hear the news. New story, they turn around and walk seven miles back. They're, they're so excited. They go back so they can be with their people. Go back to the other disciples, and then they go back. And I'm sure in the narrative, by this time, like, the, peop- the disciples back in Jerusalem are figuring it out, right? Jesus is alive. Um, and they go back to the people saying, the Lord is risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Interesting, a little uh, kind of shadow of communion there. And so they, they, it changes them. They hear the truth, they hear the story, they hear the complete story, they hear the good news, and it changes them. And if we kept reading further, we would see that Jesus actually comes to Jerusalem, and then he begins kind of meeting with them and teaching them, and that's kind of where we, everyone realizes that, oh, this is Jesus, and he has risen from the dead. They go see Jesus, and Jesus, his presence is with them, and the Spirit comes. And compared to Adam and Eve, removed from the garden, presence of God's removed from them in the way they knew it, and now there's this long road throughout the biblical narrative of trying to be accepted and come back into that relationship, basically trying to restore Eden. That is what we're going to get into in the next few weeks. So, Let's talk about how we actually live in this better story. So we have two stories, right? And all of us do this. How do we begin to live in the true and better story? 
Steve Cuss, in his book, Managing Leadership Anxiety, talks about two things that cause us to live, um, to kind of buy into lesser stories. The first he talks about is idols. We've talked a lot about idols here for a long time, but an idol is something that we think we have to have to be okay. It's a functional savior. It's something that we look to our our freedom and joy in um, outside of God, outside of God's plan. We think we need that because we're not finding that in God or in Jesus, okay? Now, this could, we all have these, right? Some of mine, my idols um, are, I, I really have the need to be liked. I want people to, 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 to approve of me. I need to, I want to accomplish a certain amount in my life. I have the need to be right. I want to be right. I want to appear impressive. These are some of the idols that, that actually shape my story, the lesser story that I fall back into rather than living in God's story. These things become part of my identity. And so you know you have an idol when you start saying, I, I must or need to have blank in order to be happy, to be valued, to have joy, to have freedom, whatever that is. Whatever that blank is, that's your idol. And that's where you really need to do some work and focus on and be aware of that. Being able to name those things and pray about those things and give those things to God. The second thing he talks about, which we haven't talked as much about here, is vows. And he, said, and he talks about vows, and often these things uh, first start in your childhood, he would say. It's a promise you make to yourself, either consciously or subconsciously, that informs the way you see and operate in the world. So if you've suffered abuse or neglect or wounds from caretakers, you most certainly have made vows. I can almost guarantee you've made vows if you've suffered abuse or neglect or, or trauma on the, uh, from the source of a caregiver. And um, Cuss in his book talks about the progression of a vow, and I think we'll all get this. I'm going to run through this really quick. So we all have experiences, right? So any experience, we have experiences all day long. So you have an experience, that's the first step. And we're built to try to make sense of that experience. All of us do this, right? We try to make sense of what's happening to us. And we make a meaning, we, we try to make sense of it. We make meaning based off the experience. And we take the meaning. Now, that's from a finite, incomplete view of us, but we still make the meaning of it. And then we make a vow based off that meaning. And usually a vow has should or ought or must or never or always attached to the vow. And then that vow, you turn into, you you begin to have a false self or really a false identity, right? You start to live as someone else. I will never be the kind of person that does blank. I will always do this from now on to not have to face blank. Or I should be the kind of person that does this. Or I ought to be the kind of person that does this. If you start hearing that language, you probably need to go back in your story and figure out when it is you made that vow. So your false self was created. And the last step is, and and Steve Cuss would say, that habits of disobedience or sin patterns become embedded and feed the false self. Right? So we start to to have to feed our this identity, right? And here's how it works for me. Um, A vow that... As I've tried to do this work and go back into my story and think of like pivotal moments when these vows were made. And we all have these, and I encourage you to do some of this work. But one of mine, there's probably others as well, but one of mine 
Um, I've talked about sports a lot in here. Sports was a large part of my identity growing up. And I distinctly remember almost everything about a moment that happened was 16. And uh, baseball was kind of my deal, especially by the time I got to be 16. And I was, we had tryouts for our varsity baseball team. I was a sophomore. And um, if you were a really good sophomore, you usually made varsity, right? So I went out and I, I tried out, did the whole thing. And then there was the, the posting of the roster type moment. And so I go up to that piece of paper. I remember it. And I wasn't on varsity. I was on JV. And I remember being crushed, crushed. And I'm following this progression. So that's an experience I had. Now I'm trying to make meaning of it. Right? Instead of just saying, you know what? It's not my time. Another year of growing, another year of practicing. I'll do it my junior year. It'll be great. Nah, that's not what I did. Right? I said, I hate this. This crushes me. I am never, ever going to let this happen again. Never. So what did I do? I became the guy who works harder than everybody else, who has unhealthy boundaries with work, who has unhealthy boundaries with competition, who has unhealthy boundaries with trying to be the best. And a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it stems back to experiences like this and these vows that I tell myself, this false self I've created, and I feed it by overwork, lack of rest, lack of taking care of myself, neglect on my family, This is part of my story that I am constantly having to go back and do work in. We all have one. What's what's your vow or vows you've made based off of experiences you've had in your past? They don't have to be negative. That was a negative. They could be positive, right? A lot of preacher types, and I probably have some of this too. Like the first time you get up and speak and someone, you have five people come up and say, you're really good at that. You did really good. This was awesome. What happens? Wow, that, that felt good. I'm going to be the kind of person that gets that, more of that, because I like that. So now you build your identity on being the really good speaker, the really good preacher. And all of your energy, all of your time, all of your effort now goes into being, instead of a child of God who gives away his talents and serves other people and lays down their life, which is what Jesus calls it to do, now it becomes about me. How can I get up to the front? How can I get up to the stand? How can I have the pulpit so I can get that feeling again? So now... We just use speaker types, use people to feel that feeling again. It's kind of sick when you put it that way, but that's what's happening. We're using other people so I can feel a certain way. Okay, this is a, and how a positive vow can actually turn negative. So how do we how do, we do this? We, we need to be aware of our idols and our vows. We need to pay attention to our, our self-talk, to the soundtrack that's playing as you live your life. That voice recording that's playing over and over in, your ba- in the background of your mind when you're living life, which is why we talk a lot about silence, getting alone, thinking, not distracting yourself all the time with screens or something in front of you, allowing the Spirit to do that deep work. You think of Jesus' baptism, right? This is the best of this. And I go back to this so much. Jesus comes out of the water. He's done nothing ministry-wise, nothing. Up to this point, he comes out of the water. God, in front of everybody, audibly says, this is my beloved son, who I am well pleased. Just this public affirmation, and Jesus is God. But yet, the Father still wants to Jesus to hear this, and he wants everyone else to hear this as well. So you need to hear these positive identity things that you have in Christ, 
that he made you just the way you are, and he loves you the way he made you. He sees you. He loves you. He approves of you. He's proud of you. Zephaniah tells us he sings over you. He calls you an heir. He calls you a son. He calls you a daughter. He calls you a friend. Paul says, he says, we're more than conquerors. Like those are true. That is true, true, true. And we need to pound those things into our head because those other stories, those other soundtracks, those other scripts are playing in our life all the time. And we need to combat those things with the things that God tells us that we actually are in Christ. If you believe in him, if you believe in the story. So how do we, what are, I want to give two practical things leaving here. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Listen to what Paul, this is, I think this is what Paul's getting at here when he says this. In, in this context, think of this. Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, so if, if this is your identity, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, set your thoughts, set your energy on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth, not on earthly stories, but on your story that is written in heaven. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. That's who you are now. You're hidden in Christ. Your life is. All of you is hidden in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That's the end. That's, that's where this thing is headed. So think of that. Set your mind on these things, not, their, not your stories, not these false things, not these false narratives that you have from your childhood. So a short-term exercise this week Pay attention, to, pay attention to the shoulds, the oughts, the nevers, the always. Pay attention to that script you have playing this week. Just try it. Create some space, right? And how is that? And tra- try to trace that back to your sin or the things you want to stop doing. Long term, we need to think about those vows. Think about those idols. We need to write those things out on paper. We need to confess those things to one another, brothers and sisters in Christ who love us, who can encourage us who can help us think through those things. And think about what are the vows you've made. What are, what are and, and these aren't your testimonies necessarily. These are points in your life that still are affecting you now. What are they? Write them out. What are your idols? How, what would God say about the idol? What would God say to me, the baseball player who failed as a 16-year-old who didn't make varsity? What would God as my father tell me in that moment to help me, to show me that I'm loved and approved of? Jesus tells us to die to ourselves. And that includes our stories. That includes these false things we believe. Paul tells us, tells the Galatians to not put a yoke of slavery back on themselves. He's talking about the law there, but that can be applied to anything, right? Don't, don't go back under the yoke of a, the, another yoke when I've given you freedom. Here's our question. Are we going to live in the story that brings freedom and joy? Or are we going to live in a lesser story that robs us and causes us not to believe in the promises of God. Let's pray. Father, we need to hear your voice clearly. As clear as Jesus heard the words from you when he came up out of the water of his baptisms, that you are my beloved son, who I love. We need to hear those things. So Spirit, help us. Help us hear those things clearly. Help us believe the true story, how you truly see us in Christ, not these other things that we import into our faith or into our life. Help us see the true story. 
We need it. We're desperate for it. And God, help us do the hard work and the, the scary work even of going back into our past, talking openly about our idols, talking openly about our vows, and how those things are affecting us now. Help us be bold and help us be courageous as we go into those spaces to do that deep work of sanctification and growth. And throughout this series, I pray that you would give us a, 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 a great picture and a clear picture of your story and how you're calling us into that greater story and to leave the lesser stories behind. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.